I want to ask you a couple questions before we get started here, and by a show of hands, how many people here have flown on an airplane? Okay. How many people here have heard the flight attendant give their talk, their safety talk? Right. Okay. How many people here have actually listened to those talks? Okay, three or four of you have. Okay, good. We've all heard the words that they've spoken. But how many of us actually listen to what they say? I want to share with you some of the words that they have actually said on airlines. These have been spoken by the flight attendants. And if you were on any of these flights, just let me know. Here's one from Southwest. Welcome aboard Southwest Flight 245. To operate your seatbelt, insert the metal tab into the buckle and pull tight. If you don't know how to operate one, you really shouldn't be out in public unsupervised. <laughs> I wasn't on that one. Here's one from Delta. Delta Airlines is pleased to have some of the best flight attendants in the industry. Unfortunately, none of them are on this flight. <laughs> Here's one. In the event of a sudden loss of cabin pressure, masks will descend from the ceiling. Stop screaming. Grab the mask and pull it over your face. If you have a small child traveling with you, secure your mask before assisting with theirs. If you're traveling with more than one small child, pick your favorite. <laughs> I kind of like that. And then they went on to say, and let's be honest, only of those of you who paid the extra $49.99 get any oxygen anyway. <laughs> After a particularly hard landing, this is what one flight attendant said. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Amarillo. Remain in your seats with your seatbelts fashion fastened while the captain taxis to our gate with what's left of our airplane. <laughs> Here's another one. In the event of an emergency water landing, your seat bottom can be used as a flotation device. In such an event, please paddle to shore and feel free to keep the seat bottom with our compliments. <laughs> Words. We hear them, but we don't hear them. We don't really listen to them at times. As your introduction says, there's an old saying, it goes, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names or words will never hurt me. And we know that that statement is not true, because be honest with you, words can hurt. Words can hurt, and words can be an encouragement. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. So here's a question. Is it possible that there would be words that are so powerful that they can actually change your life? It was about 37 years ago, right about this time, that my wife and I got words that were going to change our lives. When that doctor said, congratulations, you're going to have a baby. About a year later, that doctor said it again. So we stopped going to that doctor. But, but, <laughs> but those words changed our lives. They changed our lives. We had to start planning. We had to start preparing. We had to start saving. They changed our lives. Tonight we're going to look at 35 words that can change your life. Now, I'm not going to do it word by word, 
but it's actually all one verse. So if you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we're going to read these words that Peter gives us that can change our lives. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let's pray together. Father, again, Lord, I do thank you again for your goodness, each and every one of us, Lord. I thank you so much for the word of God and the opportunity that we have to look at it this evening. And Lord, I pray for each and every one of us here that you prepare our hearts to receive your word with meekness. Lord, we really do have a desire to pursue holiness. We do want to be more Christ-like. And yet, Lord, we are honest with ourselves. We know we fail. We drop the ball at times. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us with these 35 words that can change our lives. We'll thank in Jesus' name. Amen. go. We'll go back to the tie next week, hopefully. <laughs> but 35 words to change. Let's look at those life-changing words. Because what Peter does now, he gives us four descriptive phrases to let us know how special we are as his children. As his children. This passage is describing the father's love for his children. It's telling us how valuable we are to him, how precious we are to God, the creator of the universe. And he's telling us that we're not worth... He's telling us, you are somebody. You are a somebody. Look at what Peter tells us. He starts off by saying, but ye are a chosen generation. Folks, understand this. As your notes say, you're not random or accidental. But what I love about this passage of Scripture is that that verse that says, but ye, it's very emphatic in the Greek, and it sets up a dramatic uh, contrast between what Peter was just talking about, those who didn't see Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, and they were stumbling because of that. But then Peter turns around and says, but ye. He's like, I watch myself. But ye. And, and I can picture... Peter, with his bony little finger, fisherman finger, going, you, you are a chosen generation. Think about that. You are a chosen generation. Now, in the Old Testament, God didn't choose Israel because they were a great people. He chose them because he loved them. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2 says this, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. And for thousands of years before Peter wrote 1 Peter chapter 2, this was the language of the nation of Israel as God's chosen people. And they still are. But what he's talking about here, Peter's using this phrase, but ye are a chosen generation, as he's talking to the church and believers. Ye are a chosen people. We belong to God. We are God's chosen 
race. And that word, and that's what the word, the generation, that word generation there, genos, is people who have a common ancestor. They have a common ancestor. They share a common origin, as we do. As believers, we share a common ancestor. And guess what? Our common ancestor is God. Just think about that. It is an incredible to try to even wrap our small minds around such a great thought. You are a chosen generation. And again, I use this verse often through this study. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. All of us happen to share, uh, to share the same origin because of our new birth in Jesus Christ. Let me share with you how one commentary put it. I really enjoyed this. That's why I put it here. He says, as Peter is informing us then that the gospel has created a new race, one race made up of people from every tongue, tribe, social and economic standing, and cultural variety. God has chosen the unalike and made them into one new family. And when the gospel is the only way to explain the assortment of people gathered in a room, worshiping together, the glory of God is displayed. Now, if, if I can do this, just, just bear with me for a second. Uh, Randy, would you and your wife, J.R., would you and your wife stand up, please? Herb, would you, would you mind standing for a moment, please? Rick and Phyllis, would you mind standing? Kevin and Bev, would you mind standing? Pastor, might as well, you, you get some exercise today. Stand up, please. Uh, Ed, Edward and Sandy, would you mind standing up, please? I want to ask, how do you explain this? How do you explain the church? Because we come from different backgrounds, different nationalities, different likes, different dislikes, different social standings, but we're here. You can sit down. Thank you for that, and we'll pay you later. <laughs> but seriously, because you're the same family. And that's what, that's what uh, you're filling there. We have the same family name, Christian. Christian. You find that in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. And when he, talking about Barnabas, found him, talking about Paul, when Barnabas found Paul, he brought him unto, unto him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. The early church was made up of people just like us. Maybe not as tall, maybe not as gray, but they were just like us. And originally, that term was not a compliment. It was not a compliment. In fact, the term was coined by the Roman citizens living in Antioch as a derogatory term for those who were following a dead man. You're following the Christos, the dead guy who thought he was the Messiah. It was not a compliment at that time. But now we love that name, don't we? In fact, a lot of people love that name. Because you go to everybody, everybody, I'm a Christian. Well, I'm a Christian. But we're proud to wear that name outside of these doors, I hope. But we're proud for that name. And it's such a, a blessing, as we even talked about a week or two ago, when you run into a family member that you never knew you had, whether it's on an airplane or whether it's on a, on a bus or whether you're walking down the street or whoever it is, you're walking down and you find out that that person's a Christian. Hey, we're related. 
And I don't say that to everybody. But you know, sometimes they don't find you don't say it to me either. But we're related. You have the same origin. We have the same family name. Because we happen to belong to the same race, the race of the redeemed, the race, a chosen race, because we have the same ancestor, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ye are a chosen generation. Secondly, Peter goes on and says, you're a royal priesthood. Now, again, the Jewish believers would have found this puzzling because the king and the priest officers were always kept separate. So they, they were a little bit... Uh, curious about that. In fact, they would have been puzzled over Jesus, who was the, a descendant of David from the royal tribe of Judah, claiming to hold an office that was for the descendants of Aaron and the priestly tribe of Levi. So how did this come together? It did, because God tells us, Peter tells us, ye are a royal priesthood. And because of our union in Christ as the children of God, we have inherited the right to be both a king royalty and priests. We have royal blood flowing through our veins, and we can also fulfill the functions of a priest. I don't know about you. I can go directly to God with my prayers. I can go directly with God for, to, for my prayers for you. Because I am a royal priesthood. Take that. <laughs> But we need to understand, because we are a child of the king, we should bear a family likeness. Now, it was about a year ago, my daughter called and asked me to send her a picture that we have back when I was four or five years old. Yes, they had cameras back when I was four or five years old. They didn't etch them on the wall of a cave. I had an actual picture she wanted to look at it side by side with her son, my grandson, Graham. So we sent the picture to her, and, and unfortunately, that poor guy looks like his papa when we were four, and he was four together. And we're still praying that that will change. There was an amazing likeness from my grandson to me when we were the same age. The question for us is, do you look like your father? Do you look like your father, your heavenly father? That's what Peter's talking about here, because you are a royal priesthood. And then he goes on to say you're a holy nation. Again, he's referring to the Old Testament to support the privileges that God has granted to believers. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6 says this, And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. The word holy there, hagios, means separated unto God, and nations, ethnos, means a community of people held together by the same laws, customs, and mutual interests. So let me put it in, in modern terms for us to understand. Peter's basically effectively saying this. As a nation of believers separated unto God, you happen to be different from the nations around you. And are we ever? We are different from the nations around us. In fact, the church is at her worst when she is like the nations around her. The church is at her best when we are distinctively different 
than the world around us. The early Christians to whom Peter is writing to would have been significantly different in their lives versus the lives and the others that were around them at that time than the norms for their generation. They would have viewed marriage differently, way differently. They would have viewed parenting way differently. And they certainly would have disobeyed one of the laws. In fact, came across the 12 laws of Roman law, the 12 tables of Roman law. They would have been certainly different than this. Let me tell you what one of the laws were at that time. And I quote, Dreadfully deformed infants shall be put to death. That was one of their laws, 12 tables law of Rome at this time. In other words, to keep the royal bloodline as superior as possible, deformed infants weren't given a chance to live. Obviously, the value of human life is raised by the presence of the gospel, and in its absence, human life becomes basically worthless. And, 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 and in fact, one early church leader named Clement from Alexandria, he wrote this. He said, The Roman government and its citizens were known for saving and protecting young birds and other animals while lacking any moral regard about abandoning or aborting their own children. This was going on in Rome at Peter's time. He says, you're, you're a holy nation. You are to be different. It sounds like Rome and Planned Parenthood would have gotten along very well together, which isn't a compliment. But folks, the gospel doesn't just elevate the value of human life. It means that we're going to be different. We're going to be at odds with the culture. We're going to be at odds with the customs. We're going to be at odds with the laws. We are to be different. And not like dorky different. Different. Christ-like. Peter writes, you're a holy nation, which means you're going to be different. You're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, and you are a peculiar people. I kind of like this. The word peculiar people can also be rendered, you are a people for God's own possession. In fact, when I studied that word peculiar a little bit deeper, in the Old English, it simply means to be uniquely possessed by another. So you can read it this way. You are a people of God's own possession. Think about that. You are a people of God's own possession. And here's what it means. You and I are God's special treasure on display. And you happen to be a treasure that he was willing to die for. Just think about that. You are God's own possession that he was willing to die for. Don't ever forget the purchase price. We talked about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from their father, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb without blemish, and without spot. He died for you and for me to make us a part of his private collection of treasures, and we owe everything of our significance and value to the fact that we are owned by him. 
everything. So the question is, if these four statements are true, and they are, what should be our response? Knowing that we are a chosen generation, knowing that we are a royal priesthood, knowing that we are a holy nation, and knowing that we're a peculiar people, what should we be doing about it? And Peter answers that question with this purpose statement in verse, uh, the end of verse 8, uh, end of verse 9, and verse 10. So we looked at words that can change our lives. Now I want to look at some life changes on display. Look at verse 9 again. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Here it is. That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You see, for folks, that, those words there, that ye should show forth. Ex angelo is basically the Greek word. It means to make widely known, to advertise, or to proclaim. You're, you're a chosen generation, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're a peculiar people. So because of that, you should proclaim... The praises of God. We are God's special treasure and not to be tucked away in some safe or not to be tucked away in some safe deposit box or not to be put on a shelf. We are, in other words, you are God's advertising campaign. We are God's advertising campaign that Paul described in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, who had delivered us from the power of darkness and that translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. You see, God in his grace threw the light switch on. And when that light switch of the glorious gospel came on, the darkness fled away. Understand this, folks, and it's in your notes here. Only God can call us out of the darkness, and only God can give us light. And Peter calls it marvelous. That word marvelous is beyond human comprehension. It is marvelous. We should be showing forth or making known God's greatness. And he goes on to say, we are singing, the, we should show the praises of him, it can also be rendered excellencies. In fact, the word praises refers not only to God's virtues, but to his ability to do heroic deeds. We should be singing God's praises because of the heroic, the excellencies that he has done for us. So let me try to put it in something that we might understand a little bit better. My wife and I had the privilege of babysitting our three, do we call babysitting for our grandkids anymore, or are we just watching the kids? We watch the kids, because we don't babysit them. Three of our kids stayed over the, uh, last week for a couple of nights, and uh, it was a, just a wonderful, wonderful time. Had a great time with them. And uh, two, my, my grandsons, uh, Andrew and Brody, love to play superheroes. In fact, their two top superheroes are Spider-Man and Iron Man. So um, 
basically, while we're down in the basement playing, they're walking around shooting spider webs at me. And they're doing whatever Iron Man does with fire coming out of his hands. So that's basically, we're playing superheroes all day long. Superheroes. Spider-Man does this. Iron Man does this. He flies. He shoots, he shoots this. He does this. He does this. Spider-Man does this. It's like, okay, cool. You know. So they love their superheroes. In fact, sometimes that's all they want to talk about. Sometimes that's all they can think about. But I'm down there with them, and something became very obvious to me. They love their superheroes. It's all they want to talk about and it's all they think about because they're four and five, five and six, whatever they are now. And I thought to myself, you know, do I love my Jesus that much? Is he all I want to talk about? Is he all I want to tell people about? You see, we learn so much from real life stuff if we're looking. So what kind of advertising campaign are you? Listen to what David said about his God. Psalm 71, verse 17. O God, thou hast taught me from my youth, and hitherto have I declared thy wondrous work. Psalm 9, verse 1, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. He is showing the praises of the excellency of his God. Psalm chapter 34, verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. Thy praise shall continually be in my mouth. So we need to ask ourselves a couple questions, folks, and I put them in your notes for this reason so you can look at them today and maybe look at them further on this week. Question number one, if the only thing the people in your sphere of influence knew about God was what you personally told them, would they know anything about him or would they be completely in the dark? Second question is, if there's something about your life that cannot be explained apart from the power of God working in you. Listen to me, people. We all, every one of us who know the grace of God that bringeth salvation that appeared to all men, every one of us who have tasted the goodness of God, everyone who knows that God's mercies are new every day, great is thy faithfulness, every one of us should just be out there praising God. Because we got something to praise him about. We can talk about the excellency because you don't know the old Rick Schneider until God came into my heart and changed my life. <coughs> so David said in Psalm chapter 40, verse 2, <coughs> He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. I'm telling you, I don't know all of your testimonies, but I know mine, and he took me out of a horrible pit and from the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, even though it's a small rock right now. <laughs> a Fisher-Price stage here. I should sing those praises for everybody to hear. Why don't I? Because God's not done with me. I'm not doing this to beat myself up. I'm doing this to encourage myself because God's not done with me. And God's still going to be working in my heart until he calls me home or comes to get me. We have so much to praise God about. 
So Peter thinks it's a pretty good idea to remind us of some of, some of God's amazing deeds here in verse 10. Let me give you the first one. God has miraculously included us. Look at verse 10. Which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. How amazing is that? You were not a part of the family, but you are now. Think about that. I love when missionary Jim Elliott put it this way. He said, we are just a bunch of nobodies who can now praise and magnify the only one who's a somebody. I mean, do you, do you remember your life, B.C.? Most of you, you know, I don't know if you got saved at the age of three or four where you didn't have much B.C., but for those of us who didn't, I remember B.C. And that's why, again, I, I sing often as I'm walking or in the shower by myself or in a car, the words to the song, Remind Me, Dear Lord. I love that. I love that chorus. Roll back the curtains of memory now and then. Show me where you brought me from and where I could have been. Just remember, I'm human, and humans forget. So remind me. Remind me, dear Lord. I love that song. Because it brings me back to where I was on May 13th, 1979, the day before I got saved. Because God has miraculously included us. And secondly, God has miraculously pardoned us. Look at the end of verse 10. Which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now actually, the Greek text reads a little bit differently. It can be read this way. You had not permanently received mercy, but now you have started receiving continuing mercy. Basically, someone showed a great concern for your condition and showed great compassion on you. Now, every year that there is an outgoing president in the United States, hopefully it's not for another four and a half years. Sorry, not to get political here. But there's a tradition that happens, each one of those presidents do, pretty much as they're leaving office. They pardon prisoners. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think the president just pardoned Susan B. Anthony the other day. And I'm not sure what prison she was in, but she's been gone for a long time, I think. But he pardoned her. But every year, when the president is leaving office, he gives pardons to a certain group of people. Now, they have all been convicted, they have all been sentenced, and they are all in prison, except Susan B., they have one hope still a presidential pardon you have been pardoned by someone who's higher than the president that's what he says of which had not obtained mercy but have now obtained mercy Peter wants us to remember that the king of heaven has included us by his grace and he has pardoned us 
And we are guilty of the crimes that we've committed. And our eternal sentence and the verdict has been announced. We are guilty. But Jesus, because of his office as a king and a priest, he pardoned us by his mercy. And guess what? We get out of jail, and our jail was forever. We have been pardoned. We did nothing to deserve it. It's all because of God's grace and his mercy. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So folks, as we continue in this pursuit of holiness, just remember these 35 words that can change your life. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray together. Father, now Lord, again, I do. I thank you so much again for the reminder of who we are. I'm so thankful, Lord, that you took us out of the darkness and turned the light on, and it is marvelous. It is beyond comprehension. So, Lord, because of that, would you help us to do the second part of this verse and show your praises, your excellencies to the world around us, let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify you, which is in heaven. Now, thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 39 this morning. Uh, Genesis chapter 39. Last week, we saw Joseph resisting temptation from Potiphar's wife. One day, she literally set a trap for him. She sent everybody out of the house, and he came in. And this is over a long period of time of tempting him. And she literally grabbed him this time, and she said, lie with me. And the Bible says that he fled and literally left his coat in her hand, and he went out of her presence, verse 13. You, God was so real to Joseph that he said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph could see that if he sinned with this woman, that he would be breaking his relationship with God, with his father, and even his own conscience. And so he said no. Well, the demon of lust in her heart became the devil of hate. She then falsely accused him of attempted rape in verse 14. Watch now as we see Joseph, an innocent man, get thrown into prison only to be forgotten. Would you please stand with me as I read Genesis chapter 39 and in verse 20. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound. And he was there in the prison. Uh, but the Lord was with Joseph, showed him mercy, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand 
all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison, the warden, he looked not to anything that was under his hand, because the Lord was with him. And that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. May we pray. Father, I pray that you would give us a song in the midst of our trials, that we can draw close to your heart. We can learn the lessons that you have for us, that our faith will be deeper and stronger, that we will love you more because of the trial. We will then turn our eyes away from ourselves and selfishness and look to others of how we can take the trial that we've had and minister to others. May we point people to Christ. If there be one today, they're not sure if heaven is their home. May the Spirit of God draw them to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, verse 20 simply says, He was there in the prison. That's all it says. And then we go on and learn about the blessings that come to his life, the prosperity. But before we get there, there is a period of time, and Psalm 105 shows us exactly what life was like when Joseph first got to prison. They didn't treat him so well when he got there. Look with me in your notes, Psalm 105, 17. God sent a man before them, before the people of the Jewish people, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron until the time that his word came. The word of the Lord tried him. This is what happened. The Bible says that, that they put shackles on his feet. They put an iron collar around his neck. Being a slave was bad, but oh, this is so much worse. And so my message is entitled, Victory Over Loneliness. Victory Over Loneliness. Many times we look at our circumstances and we feel like God has forgotten us, but he has not forgotten us. God knows exactly what has happened to us, and more importantly, God knows why. We can be tempted to think that our problems are God's faults and God's failures, but the hard trials of life are a part of God's will. He is providentially controlling things. Why, why? To make us stronger so we can better serve him, so we can better, better help other people. And so Joseph understands. He had to wait, and he had to wait, and he had to wait. You know how many years? He had to wait 13 years. That is a long trial. 13 years is a long trial from age 17 all the way to the age of 30. And now for God to use Joseph to save millions of people from a great famine in the future, he has to be brought to the attention of Pharaoh. Well, how does that happen? How do you take a Jewish slave and get him uh, before Pharaoh, king of this massive Egyptian empire? There's going to have to be a series of steps there's going to have to be what unbelievers call, well, coincidences that are going to have to happen. And so Joseph, he goes to prison. Now, Pharaoh is going to become upset with his chief butler and his chief baker, and he's going to throw them into prison. 
It's going to happen to be the same prison where Joseph is, and they're going to have a dream in the same night, and Joseph is going to interpret their dream. And one fulfillment is that one will be restored to the palace, and the other is going to be put to death. When Joseph passed the test in Potiphar's house and said no to temptation, he had no idea that God was going to allow more trials to come his way. And like Joseph, we just can't see the future. We can't see the trials of tomorrow, but God can. Right now, God sees your whole life. He sees your whole life at once. And all that we can see is what happened so far. And so we have to walk by faith. We have to trust him. We have to hold his hand. Uh, we are surprised at the things that happen in life, but God is never surprised. He gives us grace for today. And so as we grow in patience, we become more like Christ that will give him greater glory. God knows exactly what experiences, what prisons we need to go through to be able to help grow our character, to accomplish his purpose. Look with me on page two. Here it is. Joseph's descent into loneliness. We've already seen in Genesis 37, Joseph was mistreated by his brothers, hated by his brothers. They wanted to kill him. I'd say that's hate. They spoke to him in anger. They, they stole his coat that his dad gave him. They sold him as a slave. I mean, one minute, he's a 17-year-old teenager. He has his whole life before him. And in the next minute, literally in the next minute, he's the He's property owned by strangers. Joseph was the target of temptation. He resisted day after day, verse 13. He thought about the harm that would come to his relationship with God and family, and so he said no. And then we see that he is falsely accused of sexual assault, verse 15. He's an innocent man. Hey, hey, have you ever had anyone accuse you falsely of something? Has anyone ever misrepresented you? Has anyone ever questioned your motives? Has anyone ever misunderstood you? Well, this will only happen if you're alive, okay? <laughs> if you're alive, you've had this happen to you. I mean, if you're living and breathing and talking, it's going to happen at home. It's going to happen at work. It's going to happen with friendships. Uh, there's going to be this, this misunderstanding. Don't let false accusations discourage you. One more. Joseph is sent to prison indefinitely. Indefinitely. Today, our modern prison sentences, they have a minimum and a maximum sentence. For instance, if you're convicted of murder, you might get anywhere from six months to eight months. No, no. Uh, but you, you have a minimum and a maximum sentence. And you get the minimum amount of time in jail if you get off for what? Good behavior. Hey, hey, if you get off for good behavior, you can do the minimum amount of the sentence. Or today, if there's fear of virus, we'll just let you go. We'll just let you go. Uh, but now with Joseph, I mean, he's in ancient Egypt. They don't tell you how long you're going to be there. He could be there indefinitely. He doesn't know. For all he knows, he could be kept in prison for life. So how long was he in prison? Well, we're not told. It could have been four or five years. It could have been longer. When trials come, 
we tend to get irritated over little things, especially if the same things keep happening over and over again. You may say, I've been through that test with that person, that family member, that coworker. Why doesn't God just end it? Maybe, maybe you haven't learned the full lesson that God wants you to experience and understand, so he keeps letting it happening over and over again. And so, God will teach you. He'll allow that family member, that friend, that coworker, that neighbor, just to get under your skin again, again, and again. Joseph is in prison, but he is not alone. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. Is he completely alone? I mean, he doesn't know a soul. No, no, God is with him. And Joseph is going to see the hand of God in his prison experience. God's grace is going to be there. So rather than giving in to self-pity, rather than giving in to the woe-is-me attitude, Joseph is going to prosper. Nobel Prize-winning author Alexander Solzhenitsyn spent eight years in a Soviet prison. He was sentenced to hard labor. You know why? You know what his crime was? He criticized Joseph Stalin in a private letter. And for that, he went to prison. In his loneliness and in his pain, God came near. This is what he wrote. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, not between political parties, but right through every human heart. So bless you, prison. Bless you, prison, for having been in my life. That old Russian writer sounds like the psalmist who said, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Can you say that? It is good for me that I have been afflicted. Why? That I might learn thy statutes. God has lessons in suffering. You know what they're both saying? They're both saying those dungeon experiences were good for me, good for my character. It is as if, as if Joseph is also saying, bless you, prison. Bless you, prison, because once again, God is real to me. When was the last time you had a trial and you're finishing the trial and you could say, thank you, God, for this trial? Thank you, God, for drawing me closer to you through this mistreatment, this suffering, this difficulty, this tragedy, this disease, this cancer. We have people right here now today who have come to me and said, Pastor, I can now say I thank God for my cancer because I have been drawn closer to God because of it. That's Joseph. That's the spirit of Joseph. So here we go. How to have victory over loneliness. One report says about 60 million people in America feel lonely. That's 20% of our population. That's one out of five, but that was, that was before the, the, the uh, shut-in. That number has skyrocketed since March. I've had a couple of folks as recently as last week who said to me, Pastor, I have been desperately lonely. Right here, I have been desperately lonely. Now, outside the faith, suicide has spiked this year. In some cities, it has doubled. In some cities, it has tripled. 
In Fresno, California, suicide is up 70% in June. People are lonely. Even some elementary children have taken their lives. Hey, hey, kids need to go back to school. They need to go back to school. So how do we help ourselves? How do we help others have victory over loneliness? Learn from Joseph. Joseph chose to walk with God. He chose to walk with God. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. Who does God show grace and mercy to? God resisteth who? The proud and gives grace to the humble. So if you want God's grace, you want to walk with God, you resist pride in your life and you choose humility. Songwriter Audrey Meir. Audrey was born here in Pennsylvania. She sat down years ago and she thought about God's promises. God says, I'll never leave you. And she thought about that verses like Isaiah 40, 41.10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed. I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Audrey sat down and she wrote this song. If you're longing for a friend, loving and true, turn to the Savior, he waits for you. He will do the same for you as he did for me. He'll never leave you, never forsake you. Trust him and see, I'll never be lonely again, never again. For I have opened my heart's door to him, so I'll brush away the tears. I'll forget my foolish fears. I'll never be lonely again never again. That's Joseph. Joseph had been sold by his brothers to strangers, sold again to Potiphar, had a short time of enjoyment, uh, favor from Potiphar, but now he finds himself in chains. He finds himself in prison, in a cell, in a foreign land, in a dungeon. 99% of people would just say, I'm done. I just quit. I mean, have you ever thought, I'm done with 2020. I just want it to be over. Uh, Joseph could have said that about life, but, not, but he didn't. How could Joseph be so alone and yet not alone? God is with him. God is with him, and God is with us. And God gives us many promises of his presence. Uh, uh, the greatest of all is from the lips of the Lord Jesus, who said, Lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the world unto the end of the age i'll not leave you jesus said hebrews 13 uh, 5 uh, says it this way i'll never leave thee nor forsake thee and so if you want to win over loneliness begin to enjoy the presence of christ in your life talk to him listen to him sing to him talk about him to others Share him with others. Walk with him. That's really all we need to say, but there's more we learn from Joseph. Notice, secondly, Joseph chose to help others. End of verse 21. Uh, God gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. That's the, the, the prison ward. The keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. Whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The Lord was with him. Uh, that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. 
Now, it took some time. This didn't happen after a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Uh, this took some time. Maybe the guard gave him a little bit more responsibility, and he did good at that, so he gave him some more responsibility. But finally, the chief jailer gave him all the responsibilities of the entire prison. God did this. God gave him favor. And you and I need to recognize right now every good thing you have is from God. If you have a measure of health, you got it from God. If you're able to go to school and go to work, God gave that to you. You have a blessing of family, God gave it to you. You have an ability to be able to lead or impact and influence others, it's all from God. And it pleases God when you say thank you. When you sit down and, and you have this food before you and you have the ability to be able to eat it and to enjoy it, you say, thank God. Uh, thank God for my family and thank God for my health and thank God for my freedom and thank God for my ability to do this and thank God for this blessing pleases God when we show this gratitude for his blessings thank God you have another day to tell others about Christ now I don't know what the responsibilities the chief jailer gave to Joseph but he gave them all all of them to him he's the most trusted man in the prison hey any of you remember the corrupt television evangelist you say which one <laughs> do you remember Jim Baker Jim Baker, Tammy, PTL, uh, the retirement community. Jim Baker spent five years in prison on charges of fraud. This was many years ago. Two years ago, Jim Baker went to pay his respects at the funeral of Billy Graham. And while he was there, an interview saw him, uh, a reporter interviewed him and asked, and he choked back the tears and he said, Billy Graham came to me into my prison. He wrapped his arms around me when I was a mess. It was a very low point in my life. I was cleaning toilets in prison. And Billy walked in, threw his arms around me and said, Jim, I love you. I love you. He got out of prison. He wrote that book, I Was Wrong. I want you to know that there are hundreds of prison ministries today, but this is the first one. Joseph may be the forerunner of all of them as he cared for the prisoners, as he met their needs, as Billy Graham did. God has used RCPM, Cornerstone Prison Ministry, to lead several thousand prisoners to Christ over the last 25 plus years. And every time you and I give an offering, we have been supporting this ministry all these many years. And though we're not able to currently go into prison, the discipleship, the pen pal ministry continues. And I encourage you that if you're interested in being a part of that, you contact Brother Wayne Cooper. If you just raise your hand there, Wayne, this is the guy. You contact, call the office. We'll put you in touch with him. And we can still impact prisoners just as Joseph did right here. Joseph chose to help others. If you want to overcome loneliness, choose to walk with God, begin helping others, start right here at church. Here is something you can do. It's called the Extra Mile Project. I get the benefit of hearing what you do all the time, every week. The Extra Mile Project is when people, they write cards, send notes to people going through a prison experience. You call the office, you talk to 
to, uh, uh, to Cindy Levis. She organizes it all. Come on Monday, Jen will take care of you, get you all hooked up. But you write it, and you pray for that person, and you send it to them. You be a blessing to them. If you don't have the money for stamps, you bring it here, we'll mail it. If you don't have the money for cards, just get a piece of paper and write it. It means so much to people. I get to hear every week what you're doing. I can't tell you to describe with words how much it means to people going through a difficult time, the many cards and notes that you send. Here's one. Here's one. Talk to your kids and teenagers about tomorrow. We have... We have several dozen new students coming to Valley Forge Baptist Academy. They're not going to know anybody. Young people, teens, children, students, go out of your way to make them feel welcome. Go out of your way to be able to invite them to sit with you at lunch. Go out of your way to ask questions, learn their names, get to know them. Do you, parents, moms and dads, you need to tell your stories of an experience that you had when you were the outsider and tell your kids how you felt and how someone can come along and make a difference. When I was in the seventh grade, I was in a new school. When I was in the eighth grade, I was in a new school. When I was in the ninth grade, I was in a new school. When I was in the 10th grade, I was in a new church youth group. I know what it feels like, and I know what it means when someone will come alongside you. You say, right up here in this cafeteria, you say, oh, well, well, uh, I got my friends, and it's full. Well, this is what you do. You go and you get another chair, and you bring it to the table, or you leave the table with your friends, and you go and make this person feel welcome. It's important. Joseph chose to help others. Here's one. Let her see. Joseph was sensitive to those who are hurting. We begin now chapter 40. It came to pass after these things that the butler of the king of Egypt and his baker had offended the, their lord, the king of Egypt. The pharaoh, pharaoh was wroth against two of his officers, against the chief of the butlers and the chief of the bakers. He put them in ward, put them in prison, in the house of the captain of the guard, into the prison, the place where Joseph was bound. And the captain of the guard, remember who that is, that's Potiphar, charged Joseph with them, and he served them, and they continued a season in ward, in prison. And they, they dreamed a dream, both of them, each man his dream in one night, each man according to the interpretation of his dreams. But the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, which were bound in the prison, Joseph came in unto them in the morning and looked upon them. Behold, they were sad. And he asked Pharaoh's officers that were in the prison of his Lord's house, saying, Wherefore, why do you look so sad today? Why are you so sad? You know, here's something interesting. When you and I are so consumed with our problems, when we are so consumed with our burdens, we rarely are concerned about those around us who are hurting. Rather than lick his wounds, rather than saying, oh me, oh my, how long am I going to be stuck in here? Joseph, he looks at his cellmates. Verse 7, why are you so sad today? Doesn't it just bring a smile to your face? I mean, here's the guy who could be having the pity party. Here's the guy who could be so discouraged. I don't know if I'm going to be here till I die. These two people... They're here on a Pharaoh whim. They could be out in a short time. And, and he takes his eyes off of himself. 
and he puts his eyes on someone that is hurting. God helps Joseph to interpret the dreams of the butler and the baker. Now, who are these cellmates? Who are they? They are Pharaoh's trusted servants. The butler or the cupbearer, you know what his job was? When they would bring every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, evening snack, they would bring it to Pharaoh, a king of, of the empire, and this guy would eat it first. This guy would drink it first. Pharaoh would wait. <laughs> What's he waiting for? To see if it's poison. And so if the butler dies... Long live Pharaoh. <laughs> He's not going to eat that food. I mean, this is a trusted relationship between the, uh, the baker and Pharaoh, the butler and Pharaoh. Do you remember Nehemiah? Nehemiah was also a cupbearer to the king. Now, something happened. Pharaoh is mad at the butler and the baker. He puts him in jail. We're not told the details, but we're going to find out later. It had to be very serious, so it's probably a failed assassination attempt. And so Pharaoh's mad. He's wroth. He puts them in prison. Guess where? The same prison as Joseph. Chapter 39, verse 20. Joseph was put into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound. And you say, wow, isn't that a quinky-dinky? I mean, of all places, thousands of prisoners in Egypt, and it just so happens to be that these two guys are put right next to Joseph. It's just amazing how God brings people into our lives who are going through similar difficult experiences. When we are hurting, God is there to bring someone alongside who understands our pain. Maybe that is one of the reasons God let you have your trial, that disease, that cancer, so that he might help you so that you can help someone else. Joseph understands what they're going through. Joseph was free of bitterness. He's able to help them. I mean, if his heart has any resentment, any vengeance, any anger, he would have lost the opportunity to be used by God. I'm saying don't waste your trial. Don't waste your trial. In 1993, Many years ago when I was widowed, we began to have some of uh, missionaries would come through and, and, and they would pray with me and they would say, do you, do you know Pastor Dennis Jennings in Florida? And I said, no, I don't, I don't know him. And then Wayne and Melody Purcell came through and they said, do you know Pastor Dennis Jennings? I said, no. Let me put you in touch with him. You see, Pastor Jennings, his wife had cancer for 10 years. She passed away. He had two boys. He's remarried. I really, think, I really think you should talk with him. So we made the contact, and I spoke to Pastor Jennings, and he said to me, out of his experience, he said to me, he said, you, uh, you, you need to know that when you visit the places that were special to you and your wife, you're going to have a time of, of deep emotion. I just want you to know, visit those places early because when you go back the second time, it won't be so bad. And the third time will even be better. He said, I want you to know that there's going to be some people that are going to come along and they're going to try and set you up to remarry. And you know that happened to me within a month? Man, that made me angry. 
It happened within a month. And so he shared out of his experience. He was a pastor and he had two boys. He said, I want you to know that the holidays are coming and the anniversary and the birthdays are coming. And he said, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But he said, after six months, you're going to turn the corner. This is what he shared with me. And everything he said was exactly true. And then, you know, in time, I began to talk to pastors. I began to talk to missionaries. And, and I would say the things that Dennis Jennings said to me, and I would pass that on. I, uh, just a few years ago, uh, Pastor Jim Spears over here at Calvary Baptist in Pottstown, and, and we met together after, after he was widowed. And as I'm going through this list of things, and, and when I said people are going to contact you and try and set you up, and he said, no, he's going to try and set an old broken, uh, broken uh, down person like me. Next time we met for lunch, he said, you were right. I'm so glad you told me. Couldn't believe it. Trying to set me up. Pastor Rick Farinelli out in the Northwest in uh, uh, Washington or Oregon State, uh, he called and he said, he said, I just have one question. Did you stay in your church after you were widowed and remarried? And I said, yes. Why do you ask? He said, because someone in my church is telling me that I need to leave my church. I said, really? I said, are they a pastor and have they been widowed? He said, no. I said, don't listen to them. <laughs> you know, years later, he remarried. He's in the same church and God continues to flourish and bless his church. This is, this is an experience that God gave to me. He wants me to use it to be able to minister to others. I'm just passing along what someone else did to me to others. What about your what about what God wants you to do and who to share it with and how to be a blessing to someone else? Now, most of you know the story. The butler, he had a dream. He dreamed about a vine with three branches. It budded, it brought grapes. He squeezed the grapes. He gave it to Pharaoh. In three days, Joseph said, you'll be restored to the, your position with Pharaoh. The baker said, I dreamed a dream, three white baskets, food on my head. The birds came and ate them. Joseph said, the interpretation is in three days, you're going to die. You're going to die. And it happened just as he interpreted. Now, here's what I want you to notice. It's in verse 8. Chapter 40, verse 8. Joseph said unto them, do not interpretations belong to God. He pointed them to Jehovah God. Daniel did the same thing. Chapter 2, he said, O king Nebuchadnezzar, your wise men could not interpret your dreams, but there's a God in heaven that revealeth secrets, points them to God. One more thing, how to win over loneliness. Joseph did not lose faith when forgotten. Look at chapter 40, verse 23. Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forgot him. The butler forgot Joseph. How long has he already been there? Well, we don't know, but he had to be there long enough to, to earn the respect of the chief jailer, the, the, the prison warden, and now he's going to be forgotten for two more years, so he's at least there four, five, six, seven years. Let me just say very frankly, you will never receive all the credit that you are due in this life. You will never be thanked enough. You'll never be recognized enough. You'll never be praised enough. You're going to be forgotten like Joseph. All of your efforts in serving God or others. But you're not doing it for the praise of man. You're doing it for the praise of God. You men who got up at 530 
for several Saturdays to be here at 6.30 to spend your day off serving an inner city church in Camden, New Jersey. You who give sacrificially, you shut-ins who are praying for your pastors and your deacons and your leaders and your church daily. You ladies who change the diapers in the nursery, your reward is coming. Your reward is coming. Jesus said, my father is writing down every kind word, every act of service, every financial gift, every time you forgive, every good deed, every cup of cold water. It's all written down. It's all written down. My Father will reward you at the judgment seat of Christ. So don't worry if you're overlooked. Don't worry if you're forgotten. Don't worry if someone else gets the credit for something you did. It's a hard lesson, but an important one. You'll lose your joy if you're always trying to keep score. If you're always comparing yourself to, the, to others who get the praise, the test of your love is when you rejoice when others are praised. The test of your love is a, you rejoice when others are rewarded. And so as Christians, we know the end of the story. And the truth is, in eternity, it won't matter who won the professional ball game. It won't matter who hit the most home runs. It won't matter who threw the most touchdown passes. It won't matter who shot the lowest golf score. It won't matter who won the 2020 election or the 2024 election or the 2028 election. You know what matters to you? Is if you love God. If you love Jesus Christ and serve him, if you love your family, if you love your church family, if you love others and you share Christ, that's what matters. Joseph was forgotten, but that's okay because in two years, Pharaoh's going to have a dream, an important dream. And so Joseph is right now where he is supposed to be. So are you. Right now, you're exactly where you are supposed to be. So praise God. Praise God with the joy of the Lord. Father, thank you. Thank you for this man, his experiences, his faith, his love, his forgiveness, his example. God, help us to learn from it. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to come out of the lonely season because we're walking with you, because we are serving others, because we're allowing you to teach us and to grow the lessons that you would have for us in life. Let's all stand together with our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Would you take just a moment and let, let God have his way in your heart? in your life, in your words, with your family members, with your coworkers. A little more patient, a little less irritated, a little more caring, a little more observant of those who are going through the trials of life. How can you care? How can you help? How can you serve? How can you let God use you? Ask Him. Surrender. 
with our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, if you're here this morning and you say, I'm not sure that heaven's my home, I'm not sure if I'm forgiven of all of my sins, I'm not sure if I, I really have a relationship with God, that God is in my life, God is calling you into his family today. Not about joining the church, it's not about getting baptized, it's about asking God to forgive your sins and that you would believe that God's son, Jesus, died for you and rose again, and you'll trust him and him alone. If that's you today, and you're not certain that heaven's your home, but you'd like to get it settled, you'd like to pray right where you're standing and receive Jesus as your Savior, as someone did here yesterday, would you simply raise your hand? That's me, Pastor. I want to receive Christ as my Savior. I want to be born again into the family of God. I want to give my life to Christ today. Anyone at all, just hold it up high for a moment. I want to receive Christ as my Savior. Father, thank you for Joseph. Thank you for the example he is. We do surrender all to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated for just a moment and open it this evening. We're going to be turning to the book of 2 Samuel tonight, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Tonight's message is part two from last week. If you missed last Sunday morning or evening, I encourage you to go back and watch or listen to them. Last Sunday morning was a message on Joseph, temptation, how do I resist temptation? Many things we can learn from the likes of Joseph on how to resist temptation, to say no to it. And then a last a Sunday night temptation with David and how he gave into it. Now, we learned some things. We'll not review the story, but we learned some things about David's temptation and his sin with Bathsheba. David did not fall suddenly. Uh, God had told the kings in Deuteronomy, he said, don't multiply don't multiply horses, don't multiply wives, don't multiply gold and silver. And he did pretty good on number one and three, but the multiplying of wives, it didn't bring him happiness. It didn't bring him joy. And like the old cover wagons of the pioneer days, the wheels made deeper and deeper ruts in the road. And so adding more and more wives emboldened David to commit this awful sin. Uh, secondly, we see that uh, uh, David was unaccountable. He was unaccountable. Uh, it was time to go back to battle. But David was in bed. An idle mind is the devil's workshop. Everyone needs a purpose and a plan to fulfill that purpose. Uh, so what's your plan? What's your purpose? Are you going to help people in your family get closer to God? Are you going to help the brothers and sisters of, of God right here in this church? Are you going to encourage them uh, in their faith? Are you going to share the gospel starting by just giving an invitation for people to come to church? Visitors are coming to church. They're coming in the morning. They're coming in the evening. They need an invite. Share a track. Maybe from your social media, you can invite people to church to watch online. Sharing your testimony. Getting busy for God. David was unaccountable. And then in a panic, uh, David attempted a cover-up. But before we get to the consequences of his sin, before we get to the uh, repentance, uh, let's understand a, a little bit more about his temptation. 
In spite of David's sin of adultery, it is still true that David is a man after God's own heart. He sinned, but his sin was no greater than your sin or mine. Now, his sin is magnified because of who he was and how he mishandled it. His repentance is recorded in two Psalms, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, and that helps all of us when we sin. But before we are too quick to point our finger at David, uh, let's remember that if the strongest man in the world can fall into immorality, if the wisest man in the world can fall into immorality, if the godliest man in the world can fall into immorality, then we need to remember Paul's warning. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Uh, your victories of the past are not going to help you with tomorrow's temptations. You need to choose today. I'm going to walk with God today. I'm going to resist temptation today. And we're going to learn some lessons. Uh, lessons learned from David's temptation. So would you stand together with me as we finished up last week? Um, we finished the story. First Samuel, I'm sorry, Second Samuel chapter 11. And the verse that closes the chapter, verse 27... 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she, Bathsheba, became his wife and bare him a son. Now, I want you to see ten simple words. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that you and I do that is called sin displeases God. You can't code it any other way. When we sin, we displease God. When we say no to temptation, we please God. May we pray. Father, we come to you tonight. We've sang praises to your song. We've entered into your gates with thanksgiving and praise. And now we've opened your word. We know the story. And we want to learn from it. We want to learn about temptation. We want to be wise and not naive. Uh, we want to be able to learn how in our lives with our temptations to fortify, to equip ourselves, to be prepared for spiritual battle with the spiritual armor to stand strong for Jesus Christ. So, God, I pray tonight it won't be just a time of learning, but a time of commitment, a time of making vows in the place of, of spiritual blessing and spiritual energy and flourishment that we will prepare our hearts the way Joseph did, to say no to sin and yes to God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. God wants us to say no to sin. Do you remember the woman taken in adultery that, that uh, they threw down before Jesus and he kneeled down and he just, he, just, he just drew there in the dirt and everybody kind of wonders what did he draw? Did he spell out some words? Did he write the names of some of those people with stones in their hand that they had sinned? Did he just doodle? 
we can ask him when we get to heaven. Uh, he did make a statement. He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Thump, 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 thump. They dropped the rocks. They walked away. And so he looks at this woman who she thinks she's just missed death by minutes. Woman, where are your accusers? And she lifts her head and she looks around and she says, no man, Lord. No man, Lord. Do you remember what Jesus said next? Neither do I condemn thee. What a story of forgiveness. Neither do I condemn thee. But he said something else to her, didn't he? He said something else. What did he say? Go and sin no more. Go and resist temptation. Go and say no to sin. God wants us to say no to sin in our lives. Yes, we fall, and yes, we fail, and we get back up and we say no to sin, sin no more. So what do we learn from this story? Well, we learn that temptation comes in attractive packages. That's why it is attractive. The Bible says that she was not just a beautiful woman, but she was very beautiful. Temptation can be overcome, and temptation can be resisted. You know the verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer. He will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, to flee, that ye may be able to bear it. There's just a joy and there's just a satisfaction in our soul and spirit when we say no to sinful temptations. And there's a penalty and there's a severe consequences when we give into it. So where we finished last week are Temptation 101. A lot of kids going off to college and they have those classes. We'll go to the next slide now. Temptation 101. Keep David's story in mind with each of these questions. And so if we're going to learn about temptation, where does temptation come from? When does temptation generally come the strongest? How does temptation come? Who does temptation come to? Where is the best place to be when you are tempted? And what is the primary weapon that we use when we are tempted? Here's the first one. Where does temptation come from? So let's go ahead and let's go to the book of James in the New Testament. James chapter 1, right near the end of your New Testament, Hebrews, James, James chapter 1, half-brother of the Lord Jesus, writing to Jewish Christians who were living through persecution and trials. The three sources of temptation that John tells us are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil plays a part, but we also play a part. James chapter 1 uh, where there is no desire on our part, there is no temptation. James 1.13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. You ever have, have, uh, have this thought or hear people say, well, you know, it's kind of like God's fault because God put this desire in my heart, and so, you know, it's just, it's just God's fault. No, no, it is not God's fault. It is not God's fault. 
The devil plays a part, and we play a part. If there's no desire on our part, there's just no temptation. Uh, now, there are five steps to temptation, so let's, let's take this under this question, where does temptation come from? Where does it come from? Uh, well, first of all, we see in verse 14, but every man is tempted. Every man is tempted. Opportunity knocks once, but temptation beats on the door every day. It comes to the young. It comes to the old. It comes to the men. It comes to the women. It comes to the new Christian. It comes to the old Christian. We're all going to be tempted, but there's nothing wrong with that. It's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted. He did not sin. It's not the bait that constitutes the sin. It's the bite. It's the bite. So temptation comes. It's there. And then number two, you begin to enjoy the experience of the temptation. Verse 14, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. The word lust uh, means uh, strong desire, wrong desire, and that can be uh, lust for any type of sin. You begin to flirt with the temptation. The temptation says, hey, try this, just a little bit. You say, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that, but a little bit is okay. A little bit is not a sin. I'm just checking it out for research. Just checking it out for research. I wonder how many people do this. I wonder if they do it in Europe. I wonder if they do it in Africa. Just some research. You open the refrigerator. You're full. You're full. You pull out the piece of pie. No, no, it's the whole pie. You say, I'm just going to nibble. A nibble's not a sin. Three, four pieces later, that's the sin of gluttony. Yes, you see, it started with a nibble, and then it went on to three or four pieces. The car salesman says, why don't you just take it out for a test drive? Why do they do that? Because they know that, that chances are you get in the car, you smell that, that uh the chemical of the new smell, right, chemical, yeah, the new car smell, it's so clean. Uh, they have it all buffed down with that, that uh, greasy stuff, and it just looks so nice. There's no dust, and you just get a taste of it, and you want it. So last week, I gave you a living illustration that many can identify with. You're driving down the road, and you see that Krispy Kreme donut sign, and then it just flashed. I mean, it just flashed. Hot donuts now, now. And you just, you just pull in. Uh, it's like your car's on autopilot. You just want to walk in. You open the door. You just want to whiff. You just want to smell it because it smells so good. You just have to have a peek at those freshly glazed donuts coming down that conveyor belt, and then they offer you the free donut. A free donut. You're a good steward, right? You want to you be a good steward of your money? It's free. Why do, they, why do they do that? Because they love you at Krispy Kreme. They don't even know your name. They give you the free donut because they know if you have one, you'll buy a dozen or two. And the devil says with the temptation, take it for a test drive. Try it on for size. Just come in and take a whiff. It's free. It's not going to hurt anybody. 
Don't think about it. Just be spontaneous. You only live once. Five steps of temptation. Number three, you're almost hooked. Notice what he says in verse 14. He says, "Be but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. The sin hasn't happened yet. There's an enticement. You're being pulled to the temptation. You're almost there, but there's still a way out. You have to ask yourself the question, is there a way out? And sometimes it's as simple as the door. It's the door. You just got to walk through it. With a remote, it's, it's called the little red on and off button. Just touch it once. The computer, it has a button. It's the power button, and you push the power button, and it turns off. It's the exit sign. All you got to do is walk through that door. And sometimes we need to make practical and radical steps to get away from it. To do the Joseph thing, to flee, make no provision for the flesh. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says there is a way out. There is a way out. You don't have to lose your temper. You don't have to go into that sin. But if you don't take the way out, what happens? Pastor Rife, would you stand up, please? Would you give us, come on down here, would you right down here? Would you give us... This is a master fisherman. Give us a, give us a cast. Give us a cast. Plop. Okay, what have you just casted? A lure. Bait. Is it, is, is it real food? Sometimes yes. Sometimes no. Usually lure is, is uh, it looks like food and then what happens next oh, you try to make it look as real as you can you jig it you jig it reel it try to make the fish look like it's real to take it all right you try and make it look like it's real for the fish to take it and what happens when the fish takes the bait a lot of fun <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right. The hook is now set. When lust, when desire has conceived it, it oh, let me back up here. He is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. The hook is now set. When lust, desire has conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Verse 15. This is the point of temptation where you've thought about it. You've taken it for the test drive. You... You have meditated, meditated upon it. And you say, I'm going for it. And chop, chop, you bite down. And there is this moment, if it's a worm, there's this moment of euphoria, this moment of pleasure, which turns into pain. Ouch. This momentary euphoria is over and ouch. We get to number five, the deadly effects of sin kick in. And so we see in verse 15, when lust, when this desire has conceived, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth what? Death. It brings death. This is the final step of temptation. Guilt, shame, embarrassment, 
hurt, and then that spiritually dead feeling that comes with sin. Sin brings death. It brings death to your walk with God. Sin brings death to your relationships with God and family and friends. And sometimes it literally brings physical death. The apostle John said in 1 John 5, 16 that God's chastisement can literally go to the point of the sin unto death. You say, has that happened? What happened in the Bible, it happened in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, believers in heaven, they died early. It happened in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they dishonored the Lord's table. Some of you are sick, some of you have fallen asleep in God's judgment. Sin brings forth death. You go immediately to be with the Lord. When you sin, you should also go immediately to the Lord and say, God, I'm sorry. I fell. I'm wrong. Please forgive me. I repent and restore that relationship back with God. But there is a certain excitement, this euphoria about doing something that is forbidden. But when the euphoria is gone, and it goes quickly in place is guilt. That is, if you have a working conscience, you have that, that dead feeling that sin brings, that guilt and shame. What did Adam and Eve do? When their spiritual eyes were opened, what did they want to do? What did they do? Remember? Hi, who are they hiding from? They're hiding from God. And they make their uh, vine bikinis. That didn't work either, did it? Guilt and shame. Hide from God. You know the number one reason people stop coming to church? It's not because you parked in their parking space. The number one reason people stop coming to church is not because you sat in their seat. In fact, you've had an opportunity to find a new favorite seat. The number one reason that people stop coming to church is not because they want to avoid someone that they have had a conflict with last week. No. The number one reason that people stop coming to church is because they got sin in their heart. They're sinning. And if you come to church, uh, what do we do? We, we pray. We pray to God, and we, we sing praises to God, and we, we preach about godly living, and, and that's just going to make you feel more guilty if you're not ready to leave your pet sin. And just like Adam and Eve, there's a hiding from God. The answer is not to skip church. The answer is practice, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's to ask God for a fresh cleansing. It's to return to the fellowship and worship with God's people. And as you read Psalm 32, as you read Psalm 51, that's exactly what David did. Oh, God, I've sinned against you. Forgive me. Wash me clean. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. It's very easy to blame the devil. As a kid, I heard comedian Flip Wilson say, the devil made me do it. But the truth is, the devil can't make you do anything. It's your choice. You have to cooperate with him. So where does temptation come from? Our heart desires it, Jeremiah 17, 9. And then let's go on here, temptation 101. Number two, when does temptation generally come? Now, this might surprise you, often after a time of great blessing. Remember when Jesus was baptized? 
He was baptized, and as he came up out of the water, there was literally an audible voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That would be cool, wouldn't it? And the dove, uh, the Holy Spirit of God, came and lighted upon him. What a wonderful experience. What a wonderful victory. And right from there, he goes into the wilderness, and he is tempted. After the dove came the devil. After the blessing came the temptation. And after a blessing or after a victory, be prepared to be tempted. And so don't be surprised if out of walking out of church tonight, hearing a message about temptation, that it doesn't come your way, that it doesn't come tomorrow, that it doesn't come this week. An evil thought comes into your mind, uh, a frustration with a family member, a friend, a coworker, a boss. Why is that? Because sometimes we are most vulnerable when we think we're strong, but we're really weak. A young Christian knows they're weak spiritually, don't they? Uh, a young Christian says, "Man, I got to be in church. Man, I got to be reading my Bible. Oh, oh, I, I need the Christian fellowship." If not, I might fall, I might sin. A new Christian generally knows that. But then someone who knows the Lord for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years says, I'd never do that. I'd never fall into that sin. And they start to become proud. What does Proverbs say to us? Pride goes before what? Destruction and a haughty spirit before what? A fall. And that's what brought Peter down. I mean, Peter, he even brought a sword to the Last Supper and said, Hey, hey, I'll protect you, Jesus. I will die before I let them hurt you. And the same night, three times, he swore, I know not the man. When does temptation generally come? Well, it comes after a victory. It comes after a blessing. Number three, how does temptation come? Well, it enters through the doorway of her mind. And to get to your mind, that's your eyes and your ears. 2 Corinthians eleven three. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Technology can be good or bad. Right now, there is a good technology. It's called VidAngel, and I know there are many evil people that want to shut it down, but it's still operating. You don't have to, you don't have to be entertained by awful sin with TV shows and movies. That might cost you 7 or $8 a month, but it mutes the cursing. It cuts out the nudity. It takes out the sin, and yet there's a lot of Christians that, well, I don't want to take the time. I don't want to spend the money. I don't want the hassle. It's through the mind. When those flaming arrows of ungodly thoughts come our way, we must keep our guard up and not feed them. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, we're to use spiritual weapons, God's weapons, verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You cannot stop the fleeting thought, but you can stop the meditation upon it. 
visit Philadelphia, visit New York, visit any major city where there's a bunch of pigeons. And if you get some popcorn, get some breadcrumbs, and you stand real still, what will happen? You ever see Home Alone 2? <laughs> they'll come and they'll light upon you. You got to be still. You have to invite them to you. But if you want to just do this and shoo them away, they're gone. Same thing with the thoughts. You can't stop the pigeon from flying over your head, but you have complete control about meditating, about dwelling upon thoughts that dishonor and displease God. It's better for the fish to avoid and resist the bait than to struggle on the hook that will lead to their death. Our problem is we want to go window shopping. Our problem is we want to get close, be enticed. Number four, who does temptation come to? Well, everyone is tempted. But specifically, the devil attacks those who are brand new in the faith. The devil is very upset every time someone gets saved. Uh, just as the angels of God rejoice with every salvation, and that means about every minute of every day, the angels are rejoicing because somewhere in the world, someone is getting saved. But just as the angels rejoice and God rejoices, so the devil is upset. And so he wants to go right after those people and destroy the faith of a new Christian. And rather than us saying, well, I don't know if they really got saved. I don't know if they really meant it. No, no, we need to come alongside of them and encourage them. He attacks new Christians, and he attacks those who are a threat to his kingdom of darkness. When you became a new Christian, the devil will come at you hard. Like babies, new Christians are vulnerable. You have to watch over them. Uh, the devil also attacks those who are a great threat to his kingdom. Are you a threat to his kingdom? Are you a leader? Are you an influencer? If you are, you're a target. But if all you want to do is sit back and complain and do nothing, the demons are going to say, ah, pfft, they're, they're no threat to our kingdom. Let's focus on the targets. As a man of God, as a woman of God, if you find yourself constantly tempted, it just may mean that you're doing something right. It just may mean that you're on the right track. Now, there's a difference from constantly being tempted and constantly resisting it. Number five, uh, where is the best place to be when temptation comes? In the center of God's will. Joseph was in God's will in that trial when he said no. And often, we bring temptation on ourselves unnecessarily when we're out of the will of God, when we hang out with the wrong people, we're in the wrong place. We're doing, end up doing the wrong thing. And we wonder, why? Well, how, why, how did that happen? I just don't understand it. Well, here's an example. It goes something like this. A fella comes to his friend. I can't believe it. I got drunk this week. The friend asks, what? He says, yeah, I got drunk. I just don't know how it happened. And his friend says, well, you, you probably drank alcohol. Yes, of course. Well, when did this happen? What happened on Wednesday night? Well, why were you at church on Wednesday night? Well, I was in a bar with a bunch of uh, people I work with, and they said, hey, hey, why don't you just have one drink, just a drink? And it turned into two, and it turned into three, and I got drunk. Guess what? You're in the wrong place with the wrong people, the wrong time, and it resulted in you doing the wrong thing. You say, oh, I just, I just always struggle with lust. 
What are you feeding your mind? What sites are you looking at on the computer, on the tablet? You're going to the wrong places and looking at the wrong things, and it's going to result in you doing the wrong thing. So don't make it easy for the devil to tempt you. If he's not coming in the front door, he's going to come in the back door. He's not going to give up. The devil tempts you with an illicit desire, and you, you pull out the sword of the Spirit, and you quote the Bible verses, and bam, you win. And you put that sword back in, and you're so glad that that happened, and the devil whispers in your ear, man, you are awesome. And you say, yeah, yeah, I am I'm pretty awesome. And he whispers again, you're a man of God. You're a woman of God. And you say, I am a man of God. I am a woman of God. I'm, I'm just standing head and shoulders above everyone else. Guess what? You just got attacked again. But he came in the back door. This time he tempted you with what? With pride. With pride. First you were hit with the, an illicit desire, but your standards are so high, you're not going to do that sin. Your standards protected you from that sin. But he's right there to knock on the back door, to worm his way in. You have to keep your guard up. He'll be back again and again and again. But there's always a way out. And you will be blessed when you resist. Maybe today you'd say, resist? I can't even make it to Monday without resisting. You cannot do it in your own power. Maybe you have an addiction that needs to be broken. You just can't shake it. Maybe there's a lifestyle that you can't break. Maybe you're doing something repeatedly and you know it's wrong. You need help. You need to call out to Jesus. Call out to the Lord Jesus. He will help you. He will save you. There is no way to defeat the devil if you are not a Christian. Oh, I have a crucifix at home, in the car. Uh, that won't keep the devil away. Oh, I have this holy water. I have this prayer cloth. That's not going to work either. The only power that can defeat the devil is the power of Jesus Christ. And so what is the primary weapon to use when tempted? It's right here. It's the Word of God. Uh, I, I think uh, last Sunday morning I said it's great to take a Bible to work and it's great to have a Bible in your purse and to have it on your phone and tablet. But the best place to have the Bible is, is in your heart. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Constant challenge. Memorize scripture. Sing Christian hymns. Have Christian fellowship. Stay in the, the word of God. Grow in your faith. You know, when Jesus was tempted, he gave us a model to follow. I do not believe that he exercised supernatural power, God, God attributes when he said no to the devil. I believe he responded as a spirit-filled man, quoting Bible verses that he learned as a child, that he learned as a teenager. It is written. It is written. It is written. And he, he leaves a model for us to follow. A man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Uh, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Him only shalt thou serve. It is written.
Jesus also gave us a model prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer. And in that he says, he says, we should pray, God, lead me not into temptation. God, deliver me from evil. And so I, I plead with you, church family, remember that sin will hurt you, and sin will hurt your family, and sin will hurt your friends, and sin will hurt innocent people because we read about it every day in the newspaper. So here tonight, it's, it's kind of easy to be strong and say, I'm not going to sin. Tonight, would you determine by the grace of God and with the help of God, I'm going to take the principles we find in, in Genesis 37, the warning of 2 Samuel 11, the cautions of James chapter 1, and so when I, when, I, when I see danger coming, I'm just going to avoid it. I'm going to get out of the way. I'm going to flee it. Jesus said, using hyperbole, it's better to lose your eye, better to lose your hand than to continue on in sin and end up in the lake of fire. Strong words. What's he saying? He's saying, hate sin. Love God, hate sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the blessing of your word, the power of the word of God and the spirit of God. And tonight we are we're grateful that we can, can be together, sing praises. I thank you for a church family that, that loves the word of God, that loves the preaching of the word of God. And I pray that each one of us tonight may be coming out of a temptation or sin or maybe getting ready to face it tomorrow or this week or next week. Lord, prepare our hearts with your truth and your spirit to be so sensitive to walk with you and to be able to determine that we want to please you, that you will be real to us in that moment of greatest temptation. Lord, tonight I pray that we would just surrender our hearts, that you would take our lives and help us to be used by you for your glory, to be a part of the work you are doing in lives. And I thank you. I thank you for those who have been rescued from, from sin, whether as a child, a teenager, as an adult, as a senior saint now. Lord, help us never to get over that we are saved from sin, from the penalty of sin. We're being saved from the power of sin. And one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. We look forward to that day when there will be no more temptation, no more pain that comes with it. Father, thank you that we can, can lay our heart, hearts on the altar of sacrifice for you. 
Lord, give us a great week as we seek to serve you with our very best for Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that when Satan comes along and he accuses us day and night before the throne of God, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who tells you, Father, that that sin is forgiven. That sin is washed by my blood. That sin is gone as far as the east is from the west. So, Lord, help us not to be defeated or to hang on to the old sins, but to know that you are a righteous God and yet you are a merciful God and your cleansing is full and complete. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm thankful for the many stories of God working in hearts and lives and as a pastor, it's a joy to be able to get a front row seat of of God working in lives. And one of those lives, families, are John and Toy Sweeney. Uh, John and Toy are going to be moving to Houston, Texas. And so uh, John, this is his last Sunday, and uh, for a while he'll be coming back to get Toy uh, as they'll be getting things packed up, selling the house, and doing some schooling. But John, go ahead and come and share testimony tonight. We love you. Uh, it's because of you we have the Share Joy Run. Uh, you've been leader of our guardian angel. You and Toy have been involved in teen ministry. You've touched a lot of lives. Uh, but it all began because God touched your life. And we're so glad that we get to be a part of that. Thank so you. I'll get my mask on and give you a hug. But go ahead and, and uh, you can share testimony and, and tell us when we get to see you again, too. Good evening, everybody. Um, it was nice hearing the message tonight and seeing your life flash in front of your eyes. That message up there was uh, pretty much my life prior to coming here. So it was over a little over uh, 13 years ago in a month that I didn't know Jesus Christ. And uh, I came here on a Tuesday morning because of my temptation and my indiscretion ended my marriage for all practical intents and purposes. And uh, it's a little ironic. I tried to get into the door and the welcoming and church was closed and I couldn't get in and uh, we had driven by many times we just moved up to Pottstown in 2005 and and this was July of 2007 and on this Tuesday morning I said hey I've got to get some help because my marriage is over and I don't know what to do and we'd seen the church and it was bustling all the time we said okay that that's where I'm going so I didn't know anybody didn't get a track didn't do anything but just showed up here and uh, as brave as I could be, go to get in, and it stuck, and I am just crushed. And I walk around outside, and I, I forget uh, Doug's last name, but Doug was working on the, on the crew at the time, and he, uh, he let me in, and he said, hey, what's going on? And I said, brother, I just need some help. And uh, from then, he brought me upstairs, and I met uh, Linda Conrad, who turned into be, her family turned out to be my surrogate Christian family. And uh, she said, hey, you know, the guy who does the, the counseling, that the pastor, he's not available. Brother, weren't you lucky you weren't available? You didn't want any of this. So in God's infinite wisdom, put me with Pastor Joyner. And uh, man, that the rest is history from that point in time. And uh, about a year later, we started the RU program here. And like a lot of things in my life, I don't buy things that come out first. So I gave it a little bit of a chance to go and uh, became part of the RU program when it first started. 
learned a lot from Matt Manny, and interestingly enough, Dave Mengel's here tonight, and Dave, I owe you a lot. But uh, what was interesting about it, a few years into it, I got called an RU baby by Mrs. Colton, and I was kind of offended. I'm like, I'm not a baby. But to know Mrs. Colton is to know Jesus. She's a great example for us. And she called me one of her proud little RU babies. And I'd come through the program, and my time, and God had seen that it was done, um, had brought me to another intersection where I had to decide where I was going to serve. And uh, there was a little thing that happened right before that that really makes the testimony really good. Uh, we became pregnant in 2008, but it was also in 2008 we lost our first son. So I can remember that very vividly, the dates, because there's key people in here that I think, Stacy, you were my first call. I think, uh, Dave, you were out at NANC training, and you came and visited us as soon as you got back. So <coughs> my son's laughing at me because he said, hey, get ready for the waterfalls. <laughs> but when I look out, I don't, uh, I see footsteps. I see footsteps of the many people who held my hand my wife's hand as we grew and so leaving is not hard it's just looking back at the memories with love and affection for everybody the day of my son's service I think we had a couple hundred people here and pastor called and said hey great news I'm like great news I just buried my son it's like hey 10 people got saved and Matt sang a song I don't know what you sang Matt but I know I asked for you and I call him my little brother to this day. So this church is something very special to me. My family. When we were having our son, he was born via surrogacy. And I came to pastor and I said, is this right? Are we doing the right thing? And it was interesting enough to me, didn't know him well, two years we've been at the church maybe maybe a year and a half and he said I gotta pray about it and I was like well heck if you don't know what am I supposed to do <laughs> and I remember the four of us sat down at the Collegeville Diner and we talked and he said he'd gotten some counsel and he said hey we're behind you and if anybody's got anything to say you tell them to come see us because we were doing something a little different I wish my testimony stopped there but it didn't I can remember so many people, Bonnie and Roger, one night I was crying. Sound familiar? And uh, they just came up behind me and put their hands on my shoulder and said, it'll be all right. That's all they, that's all they said. It's those little things that you'll miss. But I find it very interesting. It's easy to have faith when you're surrounded by 1,500 people on a Sunday. I'm looking forward to the challenge of putting my faith to work, finding a new church, finding a place I can call home, going out and trying to lead my family and raise my son the right way. But I know I have the backing of so many here, so many people I call friends, from RU to the teens and uh, just so many families out here. So, uh, Pastor, I hope I did what you wanted to tonight. But from our family to yours, we say thank you. Um, it's been a ride. We love you guys. Thank you.
love you both. We're so glad we get to have Toy a few extra months other than you, but uh, we're glad Toy can stay here and Tucker. But we're going to be praying. When will you be back up? Do you know? Uh, don't know. Don't know? So, okay. It begins work in a week down in Texas. Uh, we're family. We're family. A shared joy is a double joy, and a shared sorrow is half a sorrow. And we've been through that both with the Sweeney's, the joy and the sorrow. But we're family. And you, I ask you to join me as we pray for them, uh, for God's blessings, and go, going out as missionaries to Texas. If anyone uh, needs some godly Christians, it's Texas. And so God will use you in a wonderful, wonderful way. Well, let's all stand together. I want to be able to show you what some may have missed this morning. We do have a, uh, a program. Go ahead, let's all stand together. But I think we have that uh, building slide. You see, it's John Sweeney is why we have a gathering project. It's John Sweeney that we want to reach one more soul for Jesus Christ and one more wife and one more single and one more teen and one more child because it's eternity. It's eternity. And if you would spend some, whatever your passion is, Fishing or sports or politics, whatever it is, your work, you take some of that passion that you have for something else, it may not be bad, it might be good, but if you put it into that which counts for eternity, there'd be more John and Toy Sweeney stories. Glory to God. All right, I'm going to have a deacon come at this time. Brother Tom Levis, you'll come and uh, lead us in a closing prayer tonight. It's with Levis' wife, Cindy. If you want to be involved in Extra Mile Project, she's the one to contact, and she'll get you all set up. Have a great week serving the Lord. Let's go ahead and be prayer in prayer for our academy as we, uh, as we begin school tomorrow. Thank you, Brother Levis. It's Tom's birthday today. <laughs> Let's say happy birthday. Happy birthday. You want to sing? Okay, here we go. Here we go. Thank you very much. Amen. Pray. Let's pray. Father, just thank you and praise you for this time that we can come and gather together, Lord. And as we close out this Lord's Day, we thank you for the victory we have in Jesus Christ, Lord. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the salvation that you've provided. We thank you for the strength that you give us each and every day to walk in your ways and to uh, present our bodies a living sacrifice to you. Lord, we thank you also for this place that you've raised up for the lighthouse it is here and around the world. Lord, I just pray, Father, you continue to find us faithful. And Lord, we pray for the Sweeney's tonight as they head uh, to Texas. Lord, I pray that you would go before them, that you would direct their paths, Lord, and that you would use them in a mighty way for your honor and glory, Lord. And we pray also for the start of a new school year. And Lord, I pray, Father, for the students, for the teachers, for the parents, Lord, that you would just wrap your arms around them Give them wisdom. Keep your uh, strength and your safety around the kids during this time, Lord. And, Lord, we just commit all this to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen.